The accuracy of this story cannot be confirmed, but it serves our purposes well enough in any event, whatever the truth behind it all is. But as the story goes, Martin Luther was asked, if you knew that Christ would return at the end of this day, how would you spend the day? And Luther's answer, it's reported, was this. I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. I don't know, maybe Martin's conscience was bothering him there. Maybe he had made a promise to his beloved Katie about a tree that he'd never quite gotten around to planting. I don't know, maybe he owed some back taxes. I'm not sure what the story is behind it. But his answer is certainly hyperbole. If you knew Christ was coming today, would you plant a tree? It's exaggeration to make a point, but it's a very insightful point. We'll come back to it in a bit, but let me ask you first of all, honestly, if you knew it was assured in some way that Jesus Christ would return Monday evening, how would you live tomorrow? How would that affect your day? What would you choose to do and not to do? After a sleepless night, we might drop to our knees on Monday morning and spend the rest of the day in repentant prayer seeking to purify our hearts. If we really knew Jesus was coming. Or we might scratch out a long call list and spend tomorrow making amends with certain people. Probably none of us would go to work. And we certainly would not plant a tree. But maybe we should. Luther was not saying this. He was not saying we should go about our business as if the return of Christ was of no consequence. That's not the point. He once said, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming tomorrow. A good way to live. He's not disinterested in the return of Christ. The followers of Jesus Christ are indeed to live every day in keen anticipation of our Savior's return. No follower of Jesus will ever know the day of Christ's coming. And so to ask what we would do on that day is purely hypothetical amusement. But it is serious business to consider how we should live our days on earth knowing Jesus may come at any time. We must start by recognizing this. And I believe the book of 1 Peter has been bringing us to this recognition over and again, though somewhat subtly, we must first recognize this, that we occupy the era between the advents of Christ. There was His first coming. At His first coming, at His first advent, Jesus fulfilled all prophecy and provided the last and final sacrifice for sin. That's His first advent, His first coming. There is then His second coming down the road. And we live between these comings. Today, His followers live in what we might call an era of suffering of widespread and sometimes even violent resistance to the Gospel and those who embrace it. It is vital that we begin to learn to see beyond our own individual stories and see ourselves between these advents of Christ. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer. 
you're in the era of suffering. Christ has come. He'll come again. You stand between. We need to see ourselves there. And we must, as we look back to His first coming as the source of our salvation, we must also look forward to His second coming as the era of vindication and triumph. The time when Jesus returns to set up His kingdom on earth, if we truly focus on that coming event, it will change how we live in this interim between the two advents of Christ. As we suffer persecution for doing good now, believers must consider how we should live in anticipation of and preparation for persecution. We've been coached this way, counseled this way, instructed this way in the book of 1 Peter. But as we suffer persecution for doing good, we must also consider how we should live in anticipation of and preparation for the return of Christ. Should we, knowing that Christ is coming, should we cloister ourselves away in isolated communities, hiding from the world, dressed in white robes, ready to meet Him in the air? Is that the response that we should have? I think that's one thing that Luther's poking at when he says, I'd plant a tree, not put on a robe. Should we burrow ourselves in our homes and spend our days fine-tuning our eschatological charts, our end-time events understanding? Should we build bunkers with great stores to survive tribulation prior to Jesus' return? How should we live? Peter's answer comes to us in chapter 4. If you make your way there to chapter 4 and verse 7, his Peter, it, Peter's answer comes to us here, and it looks a lot more like planting trees and paying taxes than it does anything else. It looks like living life to its fullest with a keen anticipation of what is to come. More instructively, it means pursuing, I think, three life orientations. I think these are representative. He could have added others. But we do discern here three life orientations for those who are truly considering the return of Christ and living in this interim as if Christ is indeed coming. He starts with this eschatology, this end time idea in verse 7 where it says, the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? The end of all things is at hand. It means that every major event in God's salvation plan that must happen prior to Christ's return has been fulfilled. Obviously, the Gospel must reach its intended scope historically, and we don't know exactly what that is. Obviously, Christ continues to add to His flock until those ranks are completed. But there are no prophecies of Scripture revealing any major event in salvation history that must come before Jesus returns. The last thing that needed to happen was Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and His being seated at the right hand of God. He can come when He wants now. The end 
of the era of persecution and the coming of Christ to establish the era of vindication and triumph is spring-loaded. And it's ready to break in upon this world at any moment. That's the idea. The end of all things is at hand. It's ready. Therefore, verse 7, therefore, there's a response to that idea. If you believe what Scripture reveals, that Christ can come as at any moment, that all has been fulfilled, obviously there's a plan of God that's being worked out. That plan may not be done, but from our perspective, there's nothing more to come. If you believe that, therefore, there's a way that you live. There's a response, and what is that, verse 7? It is to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So I think the first characteristic, the first life orientation of those who are rightly ordered to the coming of Christ is clear-minded prayer. That's what it looks like. Clear-minded prayer, self-controlled, sober-minded are sadly not characteristic of many people who are really focused on the return of Christ. There's a lot of wackos out there and they do all kinds of weird things that just seem just so odd and strange and anything but self-controlled and sober-minded. But if you really see the coming of Jesus Christ, this is how you will live. Sober-minded, clear-headed prayer. Self-controlled speaks of exercising constraint under all circumstances. It's not just controlling your body or living a disciplined life. It has much to do, this Greek word, with with how we think. Self-controlled and sober-minded, they're almost synonymous words. It speaks of keeping your head, being sensible, properly evaluating situations maturely and correctly. People who have an eye on the return of Christ think clearly. They stand on solid ground. They operate rationally maturely, wisely, and this orientation affects their prayers. I think that's the idea of the phrase here at the end of verse 7. For the sake of your prayers, the right mindset prepares you to pray with effectiveness. It's those that are bogged down in the here and now. It is those that are taken up with the irrational and the sensual that do not have the capacities to pray effectively. But those who see the coming of Christ with sober mind, with clear-headed thinking, pray. And they pray with effectiveness. Through prayer, God's people join Him in bringing about His saving purposes in the world. He came over here at the first advent. He's coming back over here at the second. And in between, we are people with clear-headed prayer to bring the process to its completion. Through prayer, we join with God. We yearn for Him to bring the ages to this final destination. And with clear-minded wisdom, we pray out the era of rebellion against God and we pray in the era of Christ's reign. We are laboring with His people through the centuries to bring about the end clear-minded prayer. His commentary, Thomas Schreiner says this, those who know the contours of history 
are able to assess the significance of the present. Their sensible and alert thinking is to be used for prayer, for entering, for entreating God to act and move in the time that still remains. Clear-headed thinking is not my life right now. Clear-headed thinking sees much larger, and it prays to bring about what God intends. The the prayers of clear-minded believers, David's writes, is not an opiate or escape, but rather a function of clear vision. Both well stated. So, spiritual dull-mindedness, then, is evidenced by people who think only of that which is mundane and passing away. Self-centered thinking is an evidence of not really getting the picture of what's going on. Foggy thinking is revealed by prayerlessness as well. When I'm not praying, when I'm not seeing the work that God is intending to do, it is an evidence of spiritual dryness and a failure to see life for what it really is. Do you have a prayer life that is oriented with clear-headed, discerning thought toward the end of all things? If not, you're asleep. And this may be God's call to wake up and to enter upon a new life. If you are not praying in this way, laboring with God to bring about the end of the ages, you are asleep to who you are, to where you stand historically, and to what God is up to in this world. So let's learn this. Let's learn to pray contending with God to bring about the final establishment of the kingdom of Christ on earth. Let's pray that that day would come, that God would work to the glory of His name and bring about His intention. Let's learn to pray this way. Didn't Jesus tell us this? Your kingdom come. There probably anyone within a Christian context, every single person would know Jesus taught us to pray that, your kingdom come, right? We all know that. It's so obvious. Have we prayed that this week? He taught us, pray to God, your kingdom come. But how little we do. Because our storyline is all self-centered. We need to get our storyline God-centered and then we will pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will become a longing in our heart. And where that prayer is lacking, there is a spiritual dullness that is pervasive in us. So a right focus on the end of all things, on the coming of Christ, is clear-minded prayer to that end. Secondly, it is community-oriented love. It doesn't just stay in its closet praying to God, but, verse 8 of 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We have to work this out a bit. But we see in this community-oriented love an earnest love for fellow believers that readily overlooks offense. 
above all does not mean more importantly than prayer. That's not the way the Greek word would rightly be translated. But above all, just has the idea of here's an introduction of this significant point now of verses 8 and 9. Keep loving one another. One another puts it in the context of the local church, of the followers of Jesus Christ. Love one another. The kind of love in view here, agape love in the Greek, is ideally filled with high levels of emotion. But agape love is not fundamentally emotional, it is fundamentally volitional. And by the grace of God, emotion often follows, but it starts first with a decision, an orientation. It is rooted in a commitment to serve the best interest of others at any and all cost to self. When members of the body of Christ stop choosing to love one another, trouble is never far behind because we are a community that is fueled on love and love in our relationships with one another is what expresses to a watching world that Christ is. That He has come and that He saved the people. So when we cease loving one another, we invite all kinds of trouble. When we begin to critique one another, ridicule one another, become easily irritated with one another, when we become hypersensitive to the wrongs suffered by others, we cease to walk in a way that adorns the Gospel and exalts the Savior. In that process, we really do get hypersensitive to offense. when we choose to love one another, when we do not put our self-interests, our self-image, and our self-private agendas first, then what happens is, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. The sins in view are not my sins. I love other people and therefore my sins are covered or atoned for. The sins in view are primarily those of our brothers and sisters in Christ and particularly, I think, those sins that offend us and wrong us. If we are actively loving one another, making this commitment to give ourselves away for the best of others, we will cover over a multitude of sins. That's not talking about that we don't confront someone who's stuck in sin or anything along those lines. It's not wrong to talk about sin as we work to help each other through it. It's not, not saying that. But it's saying as you are offended, as people sin against you, love covers over much of that. It's like the sins of people against us are a fire that is building. A lack of love takes a can of gasoline and pours it on that fire. Love is like water poured on that fire that pacifies and covers over sin. It minimizes it. Not in the sense of fighting sin, but it minimizes it in the sense of the deal I'm making about it in my life. Now if you are not a member of a local church, 
you attend here regularly and are not a member of this church, really, ultimately, you need to sign on with the project. Because loving others in this way is a way of identifying those that identify with us that we can then love and that are called to love one another. There needs to be a primary focus of people that we choose to love. You're to love one another actively. But if we are a member of this church, if you're sensitive to the offenses others commit against you, routinely getting your feelings hurt, wary now of others, hyper-analytical of their weaknesses, there's only two things that are happening. First, you're choosing to walk a road of alienation and disunity. That's how that kind of spirit gets rooted in a church. More than what anyone has done, it is usually simply an orientation of how I'm going to relate to others. And secondly, simply, you're failing the command to love one another and pursue unity of mind. Chapter 3, verse 8. The problem is not in all the fallen sinners who surround you in the church. The problem is not that Eden Baptist Church is filled with broken people, although it is. The problem is that you're walking in disobedience to God. The call to love other people is a command. It's marching orders from our Savior. And it's a life of joy. It's a life of orienting toward the body of Christ that says, I will pour my life into you to build you up and to give you what is essential. I'll pour my life away that I can build you up in the faith. So the key is not to find that perfect church of perfect people. The key is to change our orientation to the body of Christ where earnest love among believers prevails, offenses will then be often overlooked. As Gruden puts it, but where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound. Now let's understand, this isn't a problem just in the church. I mean, we're sinners, we relate to each other as a family, and we realize that we have to work to love one another. But it's not like we've got a major problem here. We just have counsel from our Savior that gets down into our heart and helps us learn to relate to each other as we should. These things don't happen in the business world. These are not things that are happening with your unbelieving relatives and neighbors. But God in His good counsel says, listen, I love you more than that. And just to throw you at it and everybody takes care of themselves. And they get along as far as they have to, but it's really all these self-centered agendas and idolatries. I love you more than that. I am calling you to make the commitment to pour your life into others, giving yourself to them, and not making much out of offenses. That's his good counsel. So we have an earnest love for fellow believers that readily overlooks offense. That's how you live in light of Christ's coming. And secondly, under this point, a hospitable orientation toward fellow believers that is free from grumbling. We find that in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this community-oriented love shows itself in this earnest love for one another, and it shows itself 
in a hospitable orientation toward one another. Show hospitality to one another. In his book, White Guilt, Shelby Steele tells of a bygone day in America when he took road trips with his African-American father. It was a day of segregation. They had full bladders and empty stomachs. What they did is they pulled off the freeway and entered into town was not to look for the first fast food restaurant or hotel or convenience store where they could use the restroom. You know the first thing they looked for? Was another black man walking on the street. Why? Because they weren't invited. They weren't allowed in those restaurants and restrooms and hotels. And so they would pull the car onto the curb, and he said, uh, his father, see if I can get the the, uh, wording right, But uh, he said, in a tone he describes as at once pleasant and conspiratorial, he would shout, say chief. The two men would meet on the sidewalk and he would be filled in in all the places where they could stay. All the places where they could use a restroom, all the places where they could eat, and often it was in the home of a widow who would provide for them. That's how they got from place to place on their trips. Thank God we live in a different world. It's not perfect, but thank God we're in a better day. But I want you to think about this for a reason. It's not because of um, segregation or that issue as such, but it ably illustrates how some people, even in this country in the past, had to seek refuge in travel. Now, the ancient world situation was somewhat different than that, of course. It wasn't a matter of segregation as such, as was the horror of our setting. But it was something like that with Christians who travel. They had to, so to speak, say, say, chief, where can I stay in this town? Because the inns in that day, first of all, there weren't many of them in many of the cities and towns. You just couldn't find one. If you did, they would likely be full. And if you did find one, they were places of great danger physically and morally. They were debauched places. And so you would go into town and you'd say, where can I find a Christian family? And that's where you'd stay. So somewhere along the line, you'd find another believing family, this isolated, persecuted group of believers in Christ, And you'd say, okay, there's a home there, and there's a home go down this street, and there'll be a home there. Those are believers there. You might be able to stay there tonight. They may be able to feed you. And there you are, minding your business one night, and there's a knock on the door. We're traveling Christians. We need a place to stay. Now we're talking hospitality. To these strangers, you say, come into our home. We will do the best we can to feed you. You can stay here. We've got to understand the homes of these days were extremely small. Many of them, there were just one room. There might have been an upper room, perhaps. It's a very small space, and you bring in this traveling people that you don't know, and you say, I'm going to do what? Send them on? Ignore the need? 
or I am going to love. I'm going to give my resources to help this family, this individual along the way. That's hospitality in the ancient world. There were certainly many other applications that fall under the umbrella of hospitality, providing food for the needy that we know in our town, lending a helping hand when someone is moving, watching children, ministering to the sick. All of this is hospitality. But I I want us to look deep within and to understand this call to use my resources to help others. When Jesus is coming, that's how you live. When you are dead to the coming of Christ, then you circle your resources and protect them and don't give them away. But when you know Jesus is coming, you open your door and you say, come in. Whoever they are, in one sense, but particularly here of the believers in Christ, of loving them, of other Christians who are an isolated, persecuted group. Bring them into your home and care for them. And that could obviously lead to grumbling as verse 9 ends. The task was not to be taken on as a duty begrudgingly fulfilled. There was no place for grumbling and belly aching over such opportunities. The attitude again is the end of all things is right at hand. We'll give as we are called to give and to take these opportunities to honor the Lord. Now on the point of serving others, Peter now turns to a third characteristic of those who live in light of Christ's return. Clear-minded prayer, community-oriented love, love for the believers, and thirdly, God-glorifying service to others. Verse 10, he continues, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each one has received a gift. How do you read that? What is that? That is not a birthday gift. Okay, It's not a birthday present. What's in view here, this is a reference to spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is an endowment. A capacity that God gives to each believer so that we will use it to build up the body of Christ. We cannot earn such gifts. We cannot pray for them. We can certainly nurture them. But God gives to each of us a particular gift or set of gifts that fits us to edify his body. Now your brain did something here you didn't even recognize, but verse 10, as. What does the word as mean? You filled in a blank there that you don't maybe even recognize that you did, but as each one has received a gift, how do we take the word as? I don't think it means to the degree that you've received a gift. Although that's certainly true. Whatever degree of giftedness you've received, use it to serve others. That's true. But I think the meaning here is as we have received gifts freely from God, we should use them freely for the good of others. So as each has received a gift freely from God, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of His varied grace. Use it to serve one another. To use our gifts, our God-empowered abilities, to build up the body of Christ as good stewards of God's varied grace. That is, we are to serve as faithful stewards of the varied gifts that He distributes to His people so that His church can be built up. I mean, there's something really amazing here. 
there's huge gifts in this world that people have that are not believers. But God reveals in the Word, we read it earlier in Romans 12 this morning, God reveals in the Word that the Spirit of God is active to give to His people abilities, strengths, gifts that build up the body of Christ. I don't think there's necessarily always a radical, unique gift that's something you never had before you were saved. Sometimes it's a nurturing and a flowering of what was there. I am not sure in my own life sometimes. I was petrified to speak to people at a certain place in life until I began to preach. I hated speech. I hated talking to people. I don't know if that's a unique work that God's done in my life. He certainly has done something. I don't, we can't always know precisely what God's up to, but many times it might be. I would suspect, for instance, the Apostle Paul was probably a fairly capable teacher before he was converted. But God takes what is there, sometimes presents what is not there. We don't always know how the Spirit moves, but in some way, he builds up his people and gives to them gifts so that they can merge those gifts in with the body of Christ and see it edified. That's the kind of gifting he's talking about, a spiritual gift. To be used to serve others, and we are to use them as stewards. That is, we are to be faithful with God, with what God has given us. The world uses its gifts to pursue a higher standard of living, to amp up self-esteem or something along those lines. Those who have an eye to the return of Christ use their gifts to build up His church. They realize that's why He gave them. And that's how they should be used. Now Peter expands the thought in verse 11, qualifies it when he says, whoever speaks. Here's what he's talking about then. Whoever speaks, verse 11, as one who speaks oracles of God. Peter references here the speaking gifts, which would include ministries such as teaching, preaching, evangelizing, speaking in tongues, prophesying. All gifts in this category are given by God to teach the church His revealed truth. They are channels of revelation. So if it was the miraculous gift of tongues, then you received, in my understanding, a word of revelation from God, and you spoke that revelation in a language that you had never studied. But you conveyed the oracles of God. If it was teaching, you divulged the meaning of God's written word to His people. But whatever the specific function of this speaking gift, the speaker was to speak with the seriousness, the earnestness, and authenticity of one who speaks God's words. For in one sense, they do. These are the words of the living God. To come across with that sense. Those who speak God's word herald his message to his people, sanctifying his church and evangelizing the lost. If the gift is one of speaking, speak the truth. And I think as we think on the church that we see this, these gifts uh, operative within the assembly. The teaching, preaching, evangelizing type of gifts. 
And I think they are epitomized in the office of elders. As we mentioned earlier, as we read earlier this confession of what the church is, we noted there a reference to the offices of elders and deacons. These speaking gifts are epitomized. They're not isolated there, but they are epitomized in the office of oversight in the proclamation of the word that is the task of the pastoral office. Whoever serves, then, he says, secondly, whoever serves, notice where this is headed, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Gifts of service include, as we study other passages, ministries such as giving, administration, organization, care for the poor and needy, healing, acts of love, maintaining property and utilizing resources, and generally caring for God's people and enhancing their life together. This, I think, is epitomized in the office of deacon. We are all to be servants, diakonos. But it is epitomized there in the office of deacon. Deacons serve in their gift. And they do things in their service like organize and set off fire alarms, right? (laughs) Um, It might drive some of us crazy, particularly the teachers among us. Uh, But, you know, last week, if you weren't with us last week, we had a fire alarm that the deacons set up for our edification. And uh, we all enjoyed that. But, you know, it was interesting, after the service, a visitor came up to me and said, thank you for this morning. And I thought that visitor meant, thank you for preaching the sermon. He said, th- I said, what, now what do you mean exactly? He said, thank you for setting off the fire alarms. A visitor. I said, really? And he said, it showed that your deacons love your people. And I started to think about that and say, you know, what was it that motivated them to do that? I preached a sermon that morning for spiritual edification. Teachers labored to build up disciples in their classes. And our deacons make us all go outside and drive us crazy, running us out in the middle of our classes. Is that what motivated them? Now, what motivated them is love for the assembly. They're not motivated. It's not like they're bored and have nothing to do and they've got to come up with a project. They came up with a project that thought about us. Now, if they do that every other week or something like that, we, we may uh, rightly intervene and say that that might be the end of it. They won't. But they want to think through it because they love us. That's all there is to it. Use your gifts to build up the body of Christ. If it's speaking speak the oracles of God. If it's serving, serve one another as good stewards of His grace. And notice what it says there at the end, by the strength that God supplies. Our deacons do a lot of work. Way more than this church would probably ever recognize. But the members of this church do a lot of work as well because we are all servants. We must rely on the strength of God, the strength that He supplies, and He will supply. He will supply whatever we need to complete in order to do what He wants us to do. 
There's many gifts that are necessary. And we come upon one this fall in our giving project that starts here. And the strength for this service to the body of Christ is not going to be found in us. We'll have much more to say as the fall comes, but God will supply, I believe, whatever strength we need to do whatever He wants us to do. Do you believe that? He'll provide for us the strength to do whatever He wants us to do. There may be moments where He wants us to do much. There may be times in life and in the seasons of life where He wants us to do less. But we are to rely upon the strength and the power of God to enable us to do everything that He has called us to do to build up His people. That's an orientation toward the coming of Christ that begins to translate into life and plants trees and pays taxes and pulls fire alarms and brings meals and organizes bodies and in every way builds up the church of Christ in love. Now we notice that all of this at the end is in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those aren't wasted words. When we speak God's words, He is glorified as the giver of the living word. When we serve in the strength of the Lord, He is glorified as the giver of that spiritual strength to build up His body. The goal is not to exalt ourselves, but to magnify the splendor of our Savior, to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. That is the ultimate life orientation of those who love Christ and know that He's coming. To live for His glory and His dominion. This same Savior that Peter speaks of here is coming again. For those of you that do not know Christ personally as your Savior, the end of history as we know it is spring-loaded and it's ready to burst in upon this world. You need to know that. You need to understand that. Every knee will bow to the glory and the dominion of Jesus Christ. If you're not living in view of this coming day, it's because you're spiritually blind and you're morally foolish. You need to line your life up with reality. The coming of Christ is coming. It's fast approaching. It's spring-loaded. If you're not living in light of that, this is a call to change. Turn from your sin and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior today and begin to live in His story. For those who know Christ as Savior, a right orientation toward the coming of Christ is not marked by an obsession with eschatology per se. It is marked by clear-headed, discerning prayer that participates with God in bringing an end to sin and bringing in the kingdom of Christ. It is marked by community-building love that shows itself in covering the offenses and sins of others against us and showing glad-hearted hospitality, putting our resources into action for the cause of Christ. And it is marked, thirdly, by God-glorifying service to the body of Christ, exercising stewardship of our speaking and serving gifts. 
a lot to chew on. But what God is doing through the writings of the Apostle Peter is He is orienting our minds. He's helping us to pull out of the rootedness into this world with its sensual pleasures and its short-sightedness and to root ourselves between the comings of Christ oriented in such a way that really reflects the realities. And if we suffer for living this way, clear-headed prayer, community-building love, God-glorifying service, if we suffer because we're living that way, so be it. Because the end of all things is at hand. And to our coming Savior belongs all the glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Our Father, we believe, help our unbelief. There's the doubts that arise, the concerns that come. I pray that You will, by Your grace, minister understanding and perception to us but there are also the doubts that are evidenced in our lives on a daily basis where we live so much for self in this life but we pause here to know and say that to Jesus Christ belongs all the glory and dominion forever and ever and as we find ourselves anticipating his return I pray that you will teach us to orient our lives to that coming in a way that honors it, adores it, adorns it, and is fitted to it. We need Your help. Father, any word of offense that I have spoken today, I pray would not be an offense of me personally against anyone here. If it's the offense of the Gospel, then I pray that You will take what is now offensive and turn it into life. Give to us, I pray, the eyes to see your truth. May we respond properly. For those who know you as Savior, we leave from this place with glad heart, knowing that while we fall short, there is a coming salvation. And we labor each day in light of that reality. Thank you for the assurance of it by your written word and by your Spirit's power within us. Transform us and change us, we pray. Help us now to deal with sin and help us to break from this place and to speak words of edification and uplifting to one another. You've put us in your gym today. There's things we've got to change and grow in and develop as a church and as individual believers. How we thank you for this workout. Build our faith. Help us to respond. Not just in, those are the words of God, but help us to respond, those are the words of God, and by His grace, I will honor them in my life. Help us to do so as a church and as individuals. And as we lay this request at Your feet, we thank You for what we know You will be pleased to do as You continue to sanctify us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.